And um, if you've got a Bible, you might want to grab it because we're going to look at three or four different passages this morning. Um, And uh, because we're doing a year of biblical literacy, um, I've resisted the temptation to put the words on the screen for you. You're going to have to look them up yourself um, this morning. So if you don't have a Bible or access to a Bible or one on the or a phone with with it on or anything like that, we've got a few Bibles. Um, at the back and we can help you with that and perhaps you guys could give those sheets up for me we won't need them right now but we'll need them in a little while um, thank you there is just a handout it's um, you know it's got cartoons on it this handout so avoid the temptation to um, scribble or colour them in or something um, as I said we have been We've started a year called the Year of Biblical Literacy. And a couple of weeks ago, I showed you a video of just some people in the church that we had interviewed very briefly just before Christmas and asked, when is it that you find time to read the Bible for yourself? And we have another of those uh, videos here. So if you can play that first video for me, this is just a little bit of um, when people go for it. So every morning, I'm always first up, um, make sure I'm getting a little bit of Bible before anything else happens for my day. So um, I split the kettle on and while I'm waiting for that to boil, I use the Bible app to read the verse of the day and I use the little plan um, and um, use those as well to help me get into the Bible. Usually it varies from uh, like each day, but um, usually it's like mornings or evenings, but yeah, sometimes I forget, sometimes I don't. But yeah, very Generally, funny. I'm reading in the morning and I, I tend to do better when I got a plan so uh, actually having the bible plan in front of me and knowing what i'm coming to the bible with that um, i'm reading through something is very helpful and so i tend to make time in the morning to do that because otherwise it just doesn't really happen um, it varies day to day um i tend to do it at the end of the day because after a long stressful day it's just nice to get some of god's word in before i rest. i often read it straight after i get back from the school run before i start the day so i've um, had a bible in the year that i just had alongside me so i stop and have a drink and have a read it is sometimes very hard to be able to squeeze it in because of work and so on so i'm thinking about possibly getting an audio bible and being able to do it at think times like you know when you're doing your ironing and you haven't got anything else to think about so uh, i get up really early well before catherine and i get up about seven and i love to read my bible between about 7 and 8 around about there well before well before <laughs> like that, Edward. (laughs) Um, uh, The lamb course starts on Friday. (laughs) Um, So so this series that we've been doing in the first month of this year in January, this is the last one in the present series, and it's been called, we've called it The Good Book. Perhaps you can just put that um, back up for me. Thank you. Yes, we've called it The Good Book, an introduction to the Bible and authority, or in other words, perhaps a different different way of asking that would be um, why, why? What is the Bible and why on earth would anybody want to read it? And uh, Jo spoke to us on the first week about the challenge of the Bible. She talked about how, as with so, a book with so many words and such diverse styles, it's quite hard to read and grasp in our culture, but it is so worth pushing into because, you know, when we think about Jesus, we think about this, this Jesus seemed to really care about the Bible. He quoted it, he'd memorized it. He seemed to know a lot about it and, that, and actually claimed that it points to him. So if we love Jesus, then this is worth looking at and by the way I would say to you if you're somebody who's here today and you aren't necessarily a believer in Jesus you wouldn't call yourself a Christian you're just maybe exploring that you're on that journey or just looking into it I would say start with Jesus if you're looking at the Christian faith start with Jesus 
read the bits of the Bible that are about Jesus first and look at him and look at whether he's worth following. And if you decide that he is worth following, um, which I personally think he is, then have a look at the Bible because the Bible is how you get to know Jesus. And that's kind of why we're doing this. And so Joe talked about that in the first week, and that's why we've kind of taken on this challenge. And then the next week, I spoke about the purpose of the Bible. I spoke about how this is not just a book of timeless truths, a book of wisdom, a book where we go to find the answers to our questions. Although all of that may be true, that's not primarily the purpose of this book. The primary purpose of the Bible is to tell God's story. It's a book about God. And it's to tell his story and it's to tell our story through his uh, lens and then how we, shape, how we shape our lives, how we shape our story through it. And then last week, Paul reminded us about the meaning of the Bible, that we aren't doing this just to learn more information. We're not expecting everyone here to become Bible scholars and theologians in that sense, um, but actually just to encounter Jesus for ourselves. And Paul introduced the idea of, um, it's a very long word, hermeneutics. And I've nicked Paul's slide, um, herma what? Um, and um, uh, basically Paul was just talking about the three questions that everybody needs to be asking as we look at the Bible. The first one is what does the text say? Okay, we need to read it. The second question is what does that text mean? And that's where sometimes we fall down because our understanding of the specific text in the Bible that we're reading is always helped by our understanding of the whole. That's part of the reason for doing this whole project because what we're trying to do is get an understanding of the bigger picture, the timeline of the whole Bible. And if you get our e-press, um, then in our e-press was a link to a blog I wrote this week about timelines and just trying to understand that. So maybe you want to check that out if you haven't had a chance. And then the third question, the application, how do I actually live this out? What does it mean for me? And every time we approach approach the Bible's text, those are the questions we're asking. When we're preaching, we're asking those questions. When we're reading for ourselves, we're asking those questions. When we're in small group and we're discussing a particular passage, we're asking this question. These questions, number one, what does it say? Number two, what does it mean? And number three, how do I live this out? You know, if we don't do number three, we are really not going to grow. You know, there are plenty of people who know what the Bible says, uh, and there are plenty of people who kind of think they know what it means, but they're just not acting on it. When I studied theology, Crispin Fletcher Louis, the guy I studied with, he said the only way, this is his opinion, the only way to approach even beginning to study this text is as some, that really works is as somebody who wants to live it out, who wants to follow Jesus, who wants to be acquainted with the Maker. And that's what this is about. And so today we're going to finish this series by looking at the origins of the Bible. How did this thing, how did this book come to exist in the first place? Um, I'm going to cover that in a second. But before I do that, I just want to tell you about something called Would You Adam and Eve It? Now, on the 24th of February, in the evening, instead of our evening service, we have booked a theatre company, Searchlight Theatre, and we have invited them to come and perform an award-winning show based on the book of Genesis and Exodus. Okay, this show has won um, awards from the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, They basically are bringing to life the first 90 chapters of the Bible in 90 minutes. They've amazed audiences all around the world for over 10 years. The show is for, and it kind of caters for anyone of the age of 10 and upwards. Okay, and if you'd like to catch a little show of it, here's a couple of minutes just to give you an idea of what it's like. Here's a little video preview of this show, Would You Adam and Eve? It's coming here in about a month's time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light, and there was. The first day, 
and he created a man in his own image. And he said to the man, what on earth are you doing? And whatever name Adam gave to each living creature, from that day on, that would be the animal's name. Uh, I'm gonna yeah. have to hurry, I'm afraid. Call that one a snake. A snake? Why a snake? Because it's quite fun to say. Snake. 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 Monosyllabic. Snake. 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 Monosyllabic. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Snake. Yeah. Right. Anyway, God saw it was not good for man to be. Uh... No, I'm going to call it a ladder. What? The story of Joseph and his amazing multicolored slop shop. Yeah. Now the thing Dream is, code. hey, what? Dream no, 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 you can't say that. Copyright. Hmm? Copyright, man. What? Lloyd Webber. What? He's everywhere. He'll be here somewhere. What? Yeah, he, he wants money. What? Andrew Lloyd Webber's got money. He wants our money. Yeah. I can't believe Andrew Lloyd Webber would want our money. It's true. I mean, I can believe he'd want our looks. That's true as well. What about Tim Rice? Well, he's no oil painting either, is can he? Can I carry on? The voice of the Lord spoke out from the bush, saying, Moses, Moses, here I am. Take off your shoes, for you stand on holy ground. Could you give me a hand with the laces? It's always a bit tight, I'm afraid. This is my shepherd's stick. So the best one you could find. You can't get the staff these days. <laughs> that's, that's probably enough. That's probably enough now. You get the idea, okay? This is a fantastic way to explore Genesis and Exodus, and I would love you to come. Now, they are quite costly, so we have to sell tickets, and you can buy tickets on the website. Um, but if the money is an issue, come and speak to us, because we don't want anyone to miss out. But we would love you to come. And this is just another way of going in-depth with the Bible. Later in the year, um, we've, I'm just in the process of setting up a bunch of, a number of lectures, more in-depth lectures. We've got four or five planned for the whole year. Um, it's not, they're not going to be for everyone, uh, but this really could be for everyone. You know, if you're 10 years or upwards and you like to be entertained, these guys are really good and uh, we'd love you to come to that. So that's coming up in two or three weeks' time. Go on the website to uh, book your tickets. Um, but today I want to look at the origins of the Bible. Where is it? How, did, how is it that this book came to exist in the first place. Now this is a pretty big subject and it could get quite academic and I won't be getting quite academic today. I'm not going too deeply into the academic side of it, but I do recommend a, vi a video you might want to watch if that's of interest to you. Um, the, the video is about an hour and a half long, but it's fantastic. And it's, um, th this material comes from Tim Mackey. And if you don't know who Tim Mackey is, if you've been watching any of the Bible Project videos that we've been um, putting about, then you'll have heard his voice. He's one of the narrators on the Bible Project videos. And in fact, he's an incredible guy, incredible theologian. He's got a brilliant story. Um, um, and I will post a, a, a link to that lecture if you want to take this in more in depth than I'm going to cover today. But, you know, today in our culture, we've got all these translations of the Bible. It's available in book form. It's available in digital form. I wonder if you ever think about how it got to be in the first place. How did the so-called Word of God actually get written down in such a way as we could read it today? And not just in books, but on our phones. How is it that we can say that this written Word, which must have been written down by somebody, somebody human, is the true divine word of God. I mean, is this a God book or is it a human book? That's a question that people have been asking over the years. And some very bright people have studied the history of how this book was formed, how it came together. It's a complicated, it's a fascinating story. And they've come up with the conclusion that there's got this, this all very fascinating, but nothing to do with God. This is a completely human enterprise. And other people take the view that it really isn't a human book at all. Actually, this is 100% divine. They sort of think that this was formed by a sort of golden tablets falling from heaven 
kind of scenario and that no humans were involved other than in a trance just writing down what, the, what God was downloading from them. And I don't think that's true either, actually, because the academics have traced the history of the Bible. We know something about how this book got together. The key here for us today is to understand and think about the fact that the Bible is both a divine and a human book. And so, if you, sorry, I've jumped ahead. Um, if you look at this picture, this is a famous picture by a famous artist called Escher, Escher, Escher. And um, this is called Drawing Hands. And I think this is a really helpful image as we think about how it is that the Bible got to exist. Because actually the truth is that both the Christian and the Jewish Orthodox traditions believe that this book, the Bible, is a divine and a human book at the same time. That neither of those two aspects is more overpowering than the other one, that it's both. Yes, it's a human book, people wrote the Bible. That's not a scandal, it's not a surprise. In fact, the Bible itself says it a few times, it says where it came from and who wrote it down. And yet at the same time, the Bible and Jesus himself make these claims about these human words written down by humans and they claim that these speak God's word to his people. And I believe there's a really strong case for that. And so you can say that yes, this Bible is both human and divine. It's not either or, it's both and. And so how did the Bible first get written down? When do you think the first mention in the Bible of writing the Bible comes? Does anybody know? I'm going to tell you because we're going to look at the passage. It's in Exodus and it's in chapter 17. So maybe you just want to look that up. Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 to 14. And we're going to read this passage together. And there are three or four other passages, but this is the longer one of the ones that we're going to read. And before we read it, I'd just like to do something that we've been encouraging all of us to do, which is to pray and ask God to speak to us through it. So I'm going to do that. Father, we're going to open up your word and we're going to read this passage and some other passages today. And our prayer, Holy Spirit, is that you would come and illuminate these words to us today. That you would speak to us through this, your word. We're open to hearing what you have to say. We open, just, we open our hands, we open our hearts, we open our ears. We want to hear what you want to say to us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me read through um, verses 8 to 14. This is a story of how Israel, um, not long after the crossing of the Red Sea, um, how they defeated the Amalekites at a place called Rephidim. And it says this, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. And tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And so when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other. So the hands remained steady until sunset. And so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Alamech from under heaven. 
And that's the passage. And I heard somebody read the Bible once and say this afterwards, and I want to say it too. He said this, this is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. And it's given to us because he loves us. Thanks be to God. And so this event happens, this story. I mean, compared to the bigger story that's it's just come after, it's quite small fry, really. But the story happened, a miraculous story. God rescues his people from their enemy. And he does it in a miraculous way by Moses holding his hands up. It's, a, it's, a little, it's an odd little story, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's an odd thing to happen. The pit that I want to really know is the last verse. Because after the event, God says to Moses very clearly, write this down. Moses, write this down. Write it on a scroll as something to be remembered. The story becomes written down and it becomes part of the public cultural memory of this group of people. And as Moses writes it down, he notes very clearly who God is, that he is the Lord, and that he's in the business of saving and delivering his people. And in this case, it tells us how that happened. It becomes a record for the next generation. You know, God says, write it down and make sure Joshua reads it. Make sure Joshua sees it. It tells of the nature of God and what is available from God for the next generation. There is rescue available. There is deliverance available. And so the scroll reminds them and their descendants that this is a God who rescues and saves. This is a God who intervenes. This is a God who's got their back. And when they're faced with trials and challenges, they're able to look back and say, well, God rescued us then, so we can trust him to do it again. How has God rescued you in your life? Now, I know some of you, I don't know all of you in depth, but I know some of you and I know a bit of your stories. And I know that you can look back and think about times when God has rescued you. And how good are we at remembering those stories? Or do we lose sight of them in the face of the adversity that we're looking at now? See, when God does something really fantastic in our lives, I think it's really important to remember to write it down. To rem- oh, I, say, I say that. I think it's important to remember it, and writing it down is a really good way to do that. It can be so easy to lose sight of the miraculous in the everyday, can't it? We, that we serve this supernatural God, that we can remember all the things he's done, and yet in the daily grind, things still seem quite stressful and quite tough. And this is the first time the Bible mentions writing down the story. But actually, it's not the first time in, this, in the story here that God has saved and delivered his people. And if you're following uh, the Bible plan that we're going through, you'll have known this because you've just read all of this in the last week or so. Okay? Because the book of Exodus actually takes its name from the event of the Exodus, the mass escape from slavery of the Israelites in Egypt. And uh, it's an epic story involving Moses, who at the time that it really kicks in is a pretty bumbling shepherd and very unsure who he really is, unsure of his own cultural identity. It involves a burning bush, it involves confronting evil, it involves 10 plagues of escalating proportions, it involves the Passover lamb, the angel of death, the death of every Egyptian firstborn, escape in the dead of night to be pursued by Pharaoh, the miraculous parting of the Red Sea so that Israel could cross on dry land, and the Egyptian army being swallowed up by the waters. I mean, that is an epic story of rescue. 
right? But initially, I mean, I know it got written down later, but initially God didn't ask them to write it down. How did God ask them, his people, to remember the exodus of Egypt? What did God say? How, what was the instruction for them? It was what? No, before that. What was that? Eat a meal. Thank you. The first thing God says, as he's giving the instructions out for the Passover, you can read this in Exodus 12, Moses is giving out these instructions and saying, this is what you've got to do. Okay, we have reached the stage in our dealings with Pharaoh where he is refusing every opportunity for grace that God is giving him. And now God is going to visit with the angel of death. And so what you guys have to do, the Israelites, is you have to sacrifice the lamb, you have to get its blood, you have to put the blood on the doorposts. And when you do that, the angel of death will pass over you. And by the way, Moses says, this is going to be a festival that you are going to celebrate every year to remember what God is about to do. And at the same time, you're going to eat unleavened bread, which is bread without yeast, because we didn't, we're not going to get time to make the, yeast, the bread rise. We've just got to grab it and go. And every year, you're going to celebrate this Passover festival to remember what God is doing. And you can read all of those details in chapter 12. The killing of a lamb whose blood is part of the rescue plan. What have we said about the Old Testament? Every story points to Jesus. Every story whispers his name. And all of that goes on. And the symbolism in the meal is there to help them remember the story. You with me? So there are two ways to remember. God says, I want you to remember what I've done initially through a symbolic meal and then through the writing down of the stories so that they can be retold and they can become part of our collective cultural identity. Because even the Israelites had short memories. They'd hardly got through the Red Sea before they were grumbling, complaining at Moses that they were hungry and didn't have any provision. Why did you bring us out of there? 450 years of slavery, God rescues them from. And the next minute, they've turned around and said, oh, we don't, we, well, maybe we should have gone back. What did we come here for? You know? It's like they've forgotten. Are you, are you like that? Because I'm probably a bit like that. Have you written down what God's done in your life this week? As you were reading the Bible this week, or just going about your daily business, if the Lord spoke to you, did you make a note of it? Or have you forgotten? Okay, I, I, I keep a journal. I keep a journal quite a lot. This is my journal, okay? I'll show you a little page of it. It's there, actually. Okay, I'm not gonna show you too much detail because that's, well, you won't be able to read it anyway. It's my writing. I keep a journal because I find it really helps me. Jo's just been, just spent some time um, retreating and part of what she's done is to go back through her journals from the past few months, years, years actually, and just to take some time to read through all that she was writing down over the past few years and reflecting. And you know, maybe you're not into writing, okay, take a picture or draw a picture or write a prayer or write a poem, be creative. Okay, that's kind of what the Psalms are, they're Israel's prayer book, song book. But it's so important that we remember what God's done because it helps us keep things in perspective when times are tough. And so that's the first mention of writing the story down. The second mention, okay, it comes two chapters later in, in Exodus chapter 19. If you want to look that up, just verse four. And it says, um, it says this, this is God renewing his covenant promise with the people at the foot of Mount Sinai. He, he says to Moses, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Now, God says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, 
These are the words God says you are to speak to the Israelites. Go and tell them this. Go and tell them, you've seen how I rescued you from Egypt. You've seen how I rescued you from the Amalekites. Now listen, if you all enter into this covenant relationship with me that I'm inviting you into, if you obey my laws and the terms of this deal that I'm going to give you, then out of all the nations, you are going to become my special, unique people. You are going to be a kingdom of priests. God's rescued his people. He's delivered them and now he wants to bring them close to his power, close to his glory, close to his goodness so that they can be the priests. Now priests are go-betweens. Priests are the people who take God to the people and the people to God. I got that the wrong way around, but you know what I'm saying. Okay? The people to God and God to the people. They're go-betweens. And God is saying, now that you are a rescued people, would you like to come into this special relationship with me and be my representatives to the whole world and reflect my glory to the whole world? And it says in verse 7 that Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that God has commanded him to speak. And the people responded together and said, we will do everything the Lord has said. And so Moses brought back their answer to the Lord. In the next few chapters, God starts to give the details of this covenant. So what are we learning from this? We're learning that the purpose of writing these down, writing down these words was to do two things. Firstly, to tell the story of a God who rescued and redeemed his people. And secondly, to invite those people into a covenant relationship with God to publish and to publish the details of that agreement. You know, when people enter into a partnership or agreement, they write the terms down, don't they? You know, you write a contract, okay, so that there's no argument later about what you agreed together. That's a very normal thing to do in law or business. You know, when I married Joe almost 25 years ago, the terms of that agreement were expressed in our marriage vows and in the public document that you can still go to a certain place and find that says that that's what we signed in 1995. So that for centuries to come, it will be forever recorded that Joe and I promised to be together in sickness and in health till death do us part. Actually, in terms of our story, we haven't published the book of words yet to, uh, to tell it, but we do have a special meal, usually about once a year, and we usually retell our story you know, when we go for our anniversary. Um, you know, I remind Joe of how I rescued her from all those countless pursuing admirers and um, all, all of that stuff. So this is where the Bible began. These are its origins. The first time it mentions actually being written and it also gets the heart of why. Why were these things written down? Based on these first two mentions of the Bible, we would conclude that what the Bible says about itself is, this is a story of rescue telling the story of a gracious rescuing God. And this is an invitation to a covenant relationship that God is inviting his rescued and redeemed people into. And then here are the terms of the covenant. He's saying, you know, if you want to come and be in this relationship with me and under my care, you need to be faithful to the terms of the covenant. Not just because God's an uptight, controlling so-and-so and wants to know how everybody behaves and wants to manage that. Because he wants them to become new and different type of humans. Ones that reflect his character and his justice and his love. And his plan is to invite people into that relationship so that they can reflect his glory, so that they can then go and invite more people into this relationship so that they can reflect his glory, etc., etc., and become priests to all nations. Well, that's God bit. How about us? How about us? See, that wasn't just the case for the Israelites 4,000 years ago. It's the same for us here and now. Many of us have already chosen 
to follow Jesus or to, to, to be a friend of God. We've chosen to sign up to that covenant. We found ourselves close to him. We found ourselves experiencing something of his presence. And maybe we've even experienced a measure of healing and transformation in our own lives for the better. And we've decided that we want to live this way in partnership with God and we are open to his offer of friendship. And if we haven't yet made that decision, then maybe today's a good day to make that. But at least, let's try and understand what the Bible's saying and what it's doing. And that's how the Bible came into being. You know, like all great parents, God is treating his people with love and grace on one side and truth and justice on the other. The Exodus story is pretty brutal if you're the enemy, if you're Pharaoh. You know, God is so, so disturbed by what humans have done with the world and what Pharaoh, for example, is doing to his people, it's gone so insane, it's gone so wrong, it's gone so unjust, that he's saying, I'm gonna step into this moment in history and I'm gonna do something about it. Not before, by the way, he gives Pharaoh nine chances to turn around. He says, I'm not gonna have you destroying human beings anymore, I'm going to act. And the Bible is the story of God acting and rescuing, redeeming, and then inviting his people into covenant. And all of that, all of that history is part of the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Torah, okay? Now, this is going to be a three-minute whistle-stop tour through the Old Testament. It's the ancient Jewish tradition. What we call the Old Testament is what the Jews call Tanakh, Tanakh, okay? Tanakh, it's at the top of your, uh, one, of the, one of the sheets that I've given you, okay? And you can get all this information from the Bible Project. You can get a 12-minute overview video that explains this little poster. And basically, it, they divide their writings up into three sections, the teaching, the prophets, and the writings. By prophets, they also include the history in that. Okay, so the prophets is sort of split into two. It's the, the sort of early prophets is the history of the nation, and the later prophets is more what we would think of as the prophetic writings. And all of this is part of the Jewish uh, Old Testament, or the Jewish Bible, um, the Old Testament. And you've got that sheet uh, with you. And if you get a bit bored of what I'm saying, maybe you can color it in. Um, I'm not going to go into loads of detail about that, but you can look for yourself. But you can see that basically we've got these three sections. We've got the Torah or the law or the teaching. We've got the Nevim, which um, means the prophets and includes the history. And then we've got the writings, the Ketuvim, which means the writings, which is the Psalms and the wisdom books and the poetry. And one of the issues about the Bible is we're talking about a number of different literary styles. And that's one of the difficulties people encounter when they're trying to understand it is because some of it's poetry and some of it's history and some of it's sort of teaching and law I suppose. Anyway this collection of writings well it grew over the course of about 1200 years. <coughs> Jewish history you know as these scrolls were written down by Moses and by David and by Solomon and by a whole bunch of other people who aren't named but are simply called scribes or prophets, what's going on is people are writing down these stories, they're writing down what's happening in their own generation, and of course they're incorporating the oral traditions that they have been told, that have been passed down from their parents' generation and before that, and so as they're looking back on history and then reflecting on that and writing it now, they're able to link up events through history, which is why you get accounts that stretch back for hundreds of years, you know, and they're able to trace through the story of this covenant promise. And you know, because if you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll know that this went pretty well for a while, this covenant, 
But then it really went all wrong. And it ended up with the nation being destroyed and God's people being captured and taken into exile in Babylon, very much a secular country, a really difficult period of Jewish history when they really had to just do everything they could to hold on to God in the midst of real opposition. And a little bit later on this year, I think it's around April, May, May, June time, we're going to come to the book of Daniel. And that's what that's all about. It's about thriving or surviving, not just surviving, but thriving when you're in exile with everybody around you who thinks differently. And anyway, you get this story told through all the narratives and told through the Old Testament. You get the books of the prophets. You know, um, Tim Mackey, who wrote all this stuff, calls the prophets covenant watchdogs. And the prophets, kind of their, their role is to kind of remind people, hey, remember that agreement that we agreed to? Let's stick to it, shall we? That's what their job is. And yet, people aren't very good at doing that. And then you get the Psalms and the wisdom and the poetry that people are writing at the same time. And so these things all interlink. That's why the, 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 the Old Testament isn't just a straight chronology, because you've got the same events looked at from different perspectives and in different ways. That's why it's important in our reading plan. We're trying to sort of get a handle on that. And sometime in the last two or three hundred years before Jesus was around, sometime two, three hundred BC, a really skilled editor, we don't know who he is, pulled together all these scrolls and established what the Jews would call the Jewish Bible or the Tanakh and started to link these things together and cross-reference this scroll to that scroll and this history book to that prophetic writing and that wisdom bit over there to that psalm over there. And spread throughout all of these writings is the idea that Israel, although they seem to have blown it with God, although they've really messed up their side of the partnership, that God has not forgotten them and he is not finished with them. And that actually there are references to somebody else who will come, a Messiah, a priest, a king, a Christ, somebody from the line of David who will come and reenact and reboot again God's rescue plan. They're looking forward with expectation. And that's why when you read and get into the New Testament and you start to read about Jesus, and that Tanakh, that is the Bible that Jesus would have known, would have studied, would have grown up with, and hence was able with the wisdom and the insight that he had to say, well, I'm the one who's come as a result of all this. I'm that guy. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, you know, Jesus knew this. If you read in Luke 24, Luke 24, 44, he says, um, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's Jesus referring to the Tanakh, those three things, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketavim, the law, uh, the, the teachings, the prophets and history and the writings. And Jesus looks at this and he arrives on the scene and he says, do you know what? All of this comes to fruition in me. I am fulfilling this story so far and I'm taking it on. And so if you turn your page over, you get the New Testament. Okay, and the New Testament split into basically three parts. Okay, there's a little bit on the side which is a re recap of the Old Testament. And then you've got these three parts, the Gospels and linked to the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles. The, the book of Luke, by the way, you might as well just read that and then go from the end of Luke straight into Acts. It's one, effectively one account, Luke and Acts. It's just that the other Gospels sort of stop at the end of Jesus, whereas Luke carries on and writes the whole story of the, new, the early church. And then you've got letters. The rest, most of the rest of the New Testament is letters from these apostles, epistles we call them. Most of them come from Paul, but there are some from others, from other apostles as well. 
And they're not just repeating the gospel story. The letters that we read in the New Testament are reflecting on Jesus's life in the light of the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament that we already know. And they're helping the church to teach and, and they're helping with discernment and they're helping with guidance. So for example, you, you know, we know this, one of the issues that Paul is sorting out is the difference between um, believers who come from a Jewish cultural background and believers who come from a non-Jewish cultural background and which of this stuff is important and which is not important. And that's what the epistles are there for. And then the Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, is kind of like a prophetic vision and letter to the, it's, it's done in the form of a letter to the churches, but it's a vision and it's there to look ahead into the future and it's there to challenge. And in our schedule, by the way, in our year of biblical literacy, we are scheduled to hit Revelation in January 2020. Okay, we just couldn't fit it in in this year, so we thought, well, we'll get to the end and then we'll do a, a decent job of revelation. We'll try and do a decent job of revelation after, after that. Anyway, in contrast to the Old Testament, which is 39 books written over 1,200 years, the New Testament's 27 books were all written within about 40 years of each other. Okay, and, these, these are, and all of these books in the New Testament are written by first-generation followers of Jesus. These are people who have been with Jesus. Every single New Testament book is written by a first-generation follower of Jesus. Okay? And those documents that they wrote, those letters were circulated and copied and collected and passed around. And as the church grew in the different parts and cities and um, places, locations that it did, these books, these letters were copied and shared and gathered and collected. And they were read by the early Christians in their meetings alongside the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible that they already had. And can you see how they were looking at the one and saying, well, this is what we know. And then this is what we understand of the Jesus story. And this is how we see these things linked together. Can you get that? I realize I'm going quite fast because, you know, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually nearly done. But are you with me? Yeah, even if you weren't, just nod and smile and then I'll think it's okay. Um, you can listen back to the, you can get the podcast and listen on half speed. Maybe that'll, maybe that'll help. There are, and so there are some incredible thematic links between the New Testament and the Old Testament. I mean, incredible. We don't have time to go into them. There's so much there. Just one example. Jesus comes and he announces what we call the reign and the rule of God. He says, I'm here to bring the kingdom of God. And I, he believes that God is present in himself and that, that he, Jesus, is the embodiment of the same God that we've just read about in the Exodus story. The same as the creator God, the same God who rescued and redeemed his people from slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm here. I'm here in his name. We have come to take back the world again. And Jesus links himself to that God. And that's what upsets the religious people so much in Jesus' day. Because it's an astonishing claim. And yet Jesus does it and then he lives, he, he doesn't just say it, he acts it out. He then forms a new team. He gets a new tribe of people. He gets 12 disciples, same as the 12 tribes of Israel. And he gets started on this ministry. He's remaking Israel. He's redefining the terms of the agreement, the agreement that he's making a new covenant. Every moment of Jesus' life is full of layer and meaning it's intentional. There are so many layers going on in the gospel stories. And you can, if you don't know really about the Old Testament, you don't have a clue of catching the depth of them. Do you get me? That's why we want to do the Old Testament. Some people have said to me, 
I said this before, but I'll say it again. Some people have said to me, oh, I just, I don't find, you know, the, the Old Testament's tricky and it's hard. Yes, it is tricky, but you'll never really grasp the New Testament if you don't have a, at least have a fighting chance of the old one. And that's why we want to read through this and we want to dig into it and we want to, you know, and believe me, it'll be okay because by September we'll, we'll get to Jesus and it'll be fine. <laughs> we'll have a little, we'll pause, we'll pause and talk about Jesus when we get to Easter. But you, you know what I mean? I say we'll get to Jesus, but of course Jesus is in every book of the Old Testament. Every story whispers his name. Here's what Jesus says at the Passover meal. Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 26. Jesus at the Passover with his disciples. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. It's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the new covenant. What is it that Jesus does to explain the meaning of his death and resurrection and to help people remember what he's done? What does he do? He has a meal. Well done, you've spotted it. It's not that hard to spot. Okay? Do you get it? The symbolism there. So the first thing Jesus does is this, how are you going to remember me with a meal, a symbolic meal? I'm making a way for you to come back to God again. The central point in all of history, relating to God again. Isn't that incredible? And then he says, go and teach everybody. You come to the um, Great Commission and he tells his disciples, the last thing he says, go and teach everybody, everything. He says, um, sorry, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them. And teach them everything that I've commanded you and I'll be with you. And the authority, Jesus says, that's expressed through me, I'm giving to you. And how do they, what do they then do? What do they do? In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, when God wants us to remember something, he first of all instigates a symbolic ritual meal by which we don't just remember, but we reenact the story. And the second thing he does is he instructs his people to write it down. So after Jesus has gone, what do the apostles do? They sit down in their circle and they're having their meal and they're saying, well, what are we gonna do now? What do we need to do to tell the story of Jesus to this new covenant family? How do we clarify the terms of this new covenant that we heard Jesus talk about? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What do you think they do? They think, well, we need some text. We need to write this story down. Just like God asked Moses to write things down so they get remembered and they get passed on. And that's what the four gospels are in the New Testament. Accounts of the life of Jesus and acts. Eyewitness testimonies from the people who were there about what happened. Can you see the parallels? And then what are the writings of the apostles? Well, those guys were Jesus' deputies. They were his authorized spokespeople. And they were the ones who were kind of authorized to carry his teachings and guide this new covenant family, the church, in what it means to be faithful to Jesus and how to submit our lives and our futures and all of our decisions to him. And so these are the origins of the New Testament. And you can't, some people say, oh, you know, I like the way Jesus sees something, but Paul, oh, I don't like how he, I don't like he does it. And you can't really do that. Tim Mackey says this, maybe you've heard something like, oh, I like Jesus, but Paul is kind of uptight. And, you know, I like some of what Peter says. You, 
Tim Mackey says, you can't with any intellectual integrity do that. It's like Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to follow how Peter represents my teaching and also how Paul will guide the church communities and what it means to be faithful to me. And you've got to work out what that is. Do you get me? These are humans who've written this down, but this is a divine word. It's not either or, it's both and. And at some point in the first few hundred years after Jesus, that collection of writings that we now know as the New Testament, it simply came about by virtue of it being, these were the documents that were written and rewritten and copied and spread around, and these are the ones that had life on them. And when the people of God read them, they were encouraged and inspired and they met with God again. And so it was a fairly straightforward process after that to say, well, these are the ones that have, seem to have the Holy Spirit. It's a discernment process, you know, and others don't seem to have, because there's lots of other documents being written at that time, and some of them are very helpful to get a cultural context. But these are the ones where it just seemed that God just kept coming back and back. These are the ones that have life. And that is how the New Testament, no committee decided it. Nobody sat down and decided what was in and what was out. That's just how it came about. Now, as I said to you, I've done a whistle-stop tour of that. I hope it's some help. And I'll post a link if you're interested in going a little bit further, in, more in-depth about this stuff. I'll post a link of a really fascinating lecture you can uh, watch about, sort of that, that, takes that takes that through a little bit more. But my encouragement to all of us today is to, as well as making sure that we're reading the Bible for ourselves, we've talked about that a lot in the last few weeks, so I won't go into that. But also, my encouragement is, if God is doing something in your life, write it down. If it's a good thing, write it down. If it's a hard thing, write it down even more. I mean, I'm not going to let you, but if you were to look at my journal, you'd find most of it's really hard things. Because I'm not very good at writing the good things down, I'm just getting on with my life when the good things are happening. But when I'm struggling with something, I find the easiest way to do, the way to bring it to God is to write it down. I've said this before, but I figure if I've written it down, then I can't doubt that he can see it. Yeah? That's just my little brain working the way it does. You know, I find I write it down, I'm processing my thoughts, I'm processing my emotions, I'm making them into prayers. Do it, do it. If you don't do that, do it. I hope this will never get published or even read by anyone else. But it's a brilliant way of me remembering. And the challenge that I want to encourage everyone, all of us to do is to keep a record of our own covenant relationship with God. You know, as I said, you don't have to write, use any kind of creative style you like. We're going to have communion together. So can those of you who are going to serve communion, can you come and do that? And why don't we just stand and uh, stretch our legs for a second. And um, this is a really good moment to celebrate this symbolic meal together. See, when Jesus gave his followers the instruction, thank you guys. Just one little note, if you're visiting today or you don't know how we do it, how we do communion here is we just queue up and then we take a bit of bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice um, and, uh, and then we take that. Um, and I, this one over here is gluten-free, so if you need that and you want to come to this side. You see, when Jesus instructs his followers to remember his death through this Passover meal, he is also echoing that Passover meal from back in the day. And he's re- instructing them, remember... This is the God who rescues and saves his people. 450 years of slavery at the hands of the Egyptians and God stepped in and rescued. 
And Jesus says, and now I'm going to do the same thing. Again, I'm going to fulfill the same role as a rescuer, as a priest. I'm going to save people from their sins through my death on the cross. And what I want you guys to do, you who are following me, is to remember that through this symbolic meal. And as we come to communion today, guys, ladies and gentlemen of the Winchester Vineyard Church and friends and family and whoever else is here today, I want to encourage you that in this moment, this is another rescue moment. Because whatever's going on in our lives, when we come to take communion, it's more than just bread and, and juice. There's a symbolic and incredibly important spiritual transaction going on here. And I don't know what situations you're in. Maybe it's broken relationships. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe it's sickness or emotional pain or Maybe your finances are up the creek or you're stressed about work or you've got family issues or whatever it is. But if you are in need of a moment, if you're in a moment where you're in need of rescue, then as you come to communion, why don't you enact again what Jesus has done for us, what God is in the business of doing, and why don't you trust that in this moment God will meet you and ask that he will. And I'm just going to read that little bit again. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he says, take, took a cup and he's given thanks and he says, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in this moment, Lord Jesus, would this bread and wine be your body and blood to us? And may we, your covenant people, be renewed again in our relationship with you. And Lord, in that, would you step in to whatever's going on in our lives? And we want to say again that in this moment, we trust you and we look to you, knowing that you're a God of rescue. In Jesus' name. And when you're ready, guys, why don't you come and take communion?